Good morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Uh, Steve Williamson here, um, all, all by myself in the studio today. Um, we're interviewing a distinguished economist, Dean Baker. He's a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research that was founded in, back in 1999, still going strong. It's based in uh, Washington, D.C., has a distinguished board uh, supporting it. And I, we want, we've been, Dean Baker's been on the show uh, several times before. And we're always having a serious discussion about the economy. I know that a lot of people in the area are still hurting with this stuff. And so the big question, I think, uh, Dean, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing well. It's a, a cold and windy day here, but very nice and beautiful. Um, I guess the first thing we have to ask you about is is the stimulus, and I, the first question is the size of it is is getting into a big debate. I don't know if people know the different economists involved in this, but there's a debate about whether a, a, a stimulus of this size will increase inflation. And people go back to the stimulus after the the uh, housing crash, and uh, folks, D- Dean Baker is one of the few economists that predicted the housing collapse. Now, he managed to see that the bubble was going to happen. So people are concerned about the size of this. And then let's talk about, is it structured right to help people? So first, the size. What's your take on uh, one point, is it $1.9 billion? Trillion dollars. Trillion dollars. Yeah, it, it, it's a large package. I don't think there's any two ways about it. And we're all, it's certainly fresh in uh, Joe Biden's memory, but all of us uh, who were following the recovery from the Great Recession, the package that the Obama administration put forward, which was uh, about a little less than $800 billion, which would be in today's dollars or relative to the economy today, probably about $1.4, trillion, um, that, that was clearly inadequate. Um, and that was the country paid a price for that. We recovered very slowly. It took us years to get back down to low rates of unemployment, really not till 2017, 18, 19. The, you know, the, the unemployment rate was falling, but it wasn't until then that we had anything like what I think we might say is acceptable levels of unemployment. And, of course, the Democrats paid a huge price politically. They got shellacked in 2010. The Republicans took control of the House and then a few years later the Senate. So Biden knows this history. He lived it. And uh, he's he's not going to err on the low side. Now, is this too much? Um, there's an argument there. You've had a number of prominent economists, Larry Summers, who was uh, one of the top economists in the Obama administration. Um, he's been very public saying it's too large. Olivier Blanchard, who's a uh, former chief economist, the International Monetary Fund, again, a very prominent economist. He also argued that. I wouldn't say they're necessarily wrong. I guess I would just say is that the risk of being too big, I think, are much, much smaller than they're saying. So the the horror story that they're sort of waving in front of us is we'll be back to 1970s type wage price spirals with inflation rising, going maybe into the double digits. 
I don't think that's a plausible story. The economy is very, very different today, um, for better or worse. Uh, I'd say for worse, but it's the reality. Unions are much weaker. So what that means is that if we start to see inflation, workers won't always be able to uh, get wage gains to offset that. Not that that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's that's the way the economy is. Um, there's other differences. Probably the most important is we have a much more globalized economy. So if it ends up being the case that we see this huge surge in demand that we can't meet domestically, well, we're going to buy it from Europe, we'll buy it from China, we'll buy it from other countries. Again, that's not a great thing. We'd rather see demand here than demand in Europe and China. But if we can't meet the demand because we don't have enough capacity, we don't have enough workers, that's what's going to happen. So I don't see that as a really bad story. So, again, I take uh, Larry Summers, a good economist. Olivia Blanchard is a very good economist. I take their point seriously, but I just don't see the risk as being that big an issue so that even if they end up being right, I don't think anything really bad happens. So just weighing the two, what's the cost of being too small, what's the cost of being too big, I think uh, President Biden made the right choice. Let's let's go big, and again, it could turn out to be too much, but I don't think that we pay a really big price for that if that's true. Are there measures, suppose it overheats the economy, suppose uh, Biden and his economists are wrong, it overheats the economy, are there measures that the government, the Fed, can take to then lower the the heat on the economy that might produce inflation. And I think you bring up the inflation, stagflation, and whatever you want to call it, in the 70s was really traumatic for a lot of people. I mean, I remember it as awful time with the rising inflation, uh, inflation uh, rates for and uh, rates for everything. Yeah, well, most obviously the Fed would raise interest rates, and that. That will slow the economy. I mean, that's the Fed. The Fed, better or worse, is very good at that. Um, I, I've often been upset with the Fed raising rates too quickly and uh, slowing growth and keeping people from getting jobs in, in situations where, at least I felt, wasn't necessary. Um, but if it really is the case that we're starting to see inflation get to be a serious problem, then, yeah, the Fed could raise rates and that will slow the economy. I mean, we, we know that it's been done again and again. It's not secret how that works. People buy fewer homes. Uh, mortgage refinancing stops. Um, it, it takes a toll on uh, investment to some extent, uh, public investment also, so that uh, state and local governments borrow less. So we have the tools. Um, so the idea that we're just going to get back into the sort of wage price spiral we had in the 70s, it's really, really very hard to see that which, again, doesn't mean it's altogether impossible that inflation will get to be a problem, but we're just such a long way from there. It's a, it's a joke, or joke, whatever line. I like to say that, you know, if we're driving west in New Jersey, if we keep going, we're going to end up in the Pacific Ocean. And, of course, that's true. But there's a lot of things you could do if you're driving west of New Jersey before you end up in the Pacific Ocean. So I'd say the same story here that, yeah, we do run a risk of inflation. I don't think it's a big one, but if we do start to see it, we have the tools. That's, I think, uh, what people really don't understand. It, it, they think it's like a one-shot deal. We, we do the, uh, the stimulus, and if it heats up the economy too much, that's it. We're just in terrible trouble. But it seems to me that the Fed just ordinarily manipulates the rates to keep that from happening. I don't see why they couldn't do it in this time. And we have to remember, I'm looking at one figure here, that jobless uh, claims, I guess this is last month, are 
up 861,000. That's a lot of jobless folks. That's a lot. I mean, that's yeah, a lot. Yeah, you of, know, it's, it's, that's for last week. And yeah. it's one of these things that I, I've been trying to remind people because, of course, we had these absolutely horrible numbers back during the shutdown period in March and April where they were over a million there. I think our peak was like five or six million. So you go, well, compared to that, we're looking good. But the number we got today was 200,000 higher than the very worst week in the Great Recession. And I remember when we gained those numbers in the Great Recession, all of us were looking at it like, oh, my God, you know, people are just losing their jobs left and right. So we're 200,000 worse than that. So that suggests there's really some big problems in the economy. Now, obviously, first and foremost, the issue is the pandemic. We get the pandemic under control. Uh, restaurants can start to open again or uh, open at something closer to capacity. Um, a lot of other businesses, people could travel again. I mean, a whole set of things that have been largely shut down because of the pandemic. So when we get the pandemic under control, those businesses will come back and people will regain those jobs. But we're clearly not there yet, and that's when we saw that number. I mean, it just shows we're 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 still going the wrong way. Again, that's not a blame of the administration. They're getting the vaccines out as quickly as they can, but just speaking to the reality. Yeah, I mean, it's a seriously, you know, it's seriously bad news that if this were to keep happening, and I think it's. Uh, as a non-economist, I think it's a good argument for stimulus or doing something to get employment back up. Um, Sedona has a lot of restaurants, and it, it's a major part of our economy here. And I noticed that there is uh, something like $25 billion in the current house uh, consideration of the program. Uh, it'll go to the Small Business Administration for restaurants, focusing on uh, businesses that have hit, hit particularly hard in uh during the inflation, um, the National Restaurant Association es- estimates that industry losses in, two twen- in 2020 at $240 billion. Uh, if you live in Sedona or the surrounding area, you can see the impact on our restaurants are beginning to reopen. But, my gosh, the, uh, the initial impact, just uh, it has to be devastating on just paying your rent or, or getting money to your employees. Yeah, and that's, uh, again, this is one of the, we had these big arguments back in the spring and then, you know, on through the summer, really through the whole campaign about, oh, we can't just shut the economy down. Well, we don't want to shut the economy down. No one wants to shut down the economy. But the point was, there are certainly certain businesses, restaurants at the top of the list, but other businesses where you have people that are in close proximity to other people and you're going to spread the pandemic. And Obviously, you have to be sympathetic to the restaurants. So the the goal, certainly, of the CARES Act, the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, that was to provide a way to keep these businesses whole or more or less whole. Now, it wasn't adequate, you know, but that was that was the idea. We're going to tell workers, okay, you're not going to go to work for however long, and we'll keep get you'll keep getting your paycheck, and the restaurants will be able to get money for rent. So it wasn't adequate for that, but that was the idea. So basically, what we want to do is say, okay, you have to shut down, or in this case, we're not talking about shutting down literally, but maybe operating at 25, 30% of capacity. I don't know where things stand there now, but in any case, operating at radically reduced capacity, and we'll basically make up the tab. Um, again, it won't be done perfectly, and some yeah, we might be overcompensating some businesses and others we're shorting, but that that's the goal, to allow them to stay whole through a period where they're largely shut down. Um, yeah, I, I know people who've been in that situation have, have gotten paycheck protection. Um, 
working in, say, car sales where it uh, initially it just collapsed and nobody was buying anything. And, uh, if, you know, if you're, if you're a salesman for, for cars, uh, you have to sell stuff to make a living. You know, they'll only carry you so much. And I, I have a friend who, who got nice help from the, from the government to help him do it. We always talk about how terrible the government is in Arizona, but the government came through when, um, when it was needed. Um, and it looks like it's planning to come through again. Are, are there elements in the plan that that uh, the House has, Dean, that that you don't think are necessary? Do you? How about the fourteen hundred dollars that they're giving to individuals who make less than what is it, seventy five thousand dollars? Yeah, this has become a big issue. That is that too high? And I, I'm actually sympathetic to that. I mean, I, you, you have a situation. This recession's been extraordinary in that the the pain has been overwhelmingly concentrated among I want to say a small group of workers, but but a limited number of workers who really uh, really are feeling it a lot. And this is we we're talking about restaurants a moment ago, but these tend to be lower end workers, workers in the service sector, lower paying jobs in the service sector, obviously some high paying jobs in the service sector, but it tends to be lower paying jobs in the service sector, and. They've been unemployed and stayed unemployed. One of the things that I've been struck by is I've been looking at uh, long-term unemployment. That's more than 26 weeks. And that just soared. So the percentage of people who are in that category of long-term unemployed, it's around 40%. It's really extraordinary. A typical recession might be 24 25%. The reason why I emphasize that is that we would more typically be seeing people go on, go through stretches of unemployment at 12 weeks, 14 weeks, and they get get another job, and then someone else might be unemployed. I mean, I'm not trivializing that. That's a problem, obviously. But when you have people who are unemployed for 26 weeks, and, of course, many of these people have now been unemployed 30, 40 weeks. They, they basically lost their jobs in March and April and haven't gotten them back. That means that the pain is very, very concentrated. Also, one of the aspects of this recession that's different from prior recessions is we haven't seen a fall in hours, which usually when you see in a recession when employers see a reduction in their demand for for workers part of it is by laying met by laying people off part of it is met by cutting back the hours that people are still on the payroll it hasn't happened here so what that means is that the pain has been extraordinarily concentrated among the people who've been unemployed and overwhelmingly, these are lower-paid workers. People work in restaurants. People work in other low-paying jobs where they're getting ten, twelve, maybe fifteen an hour. They're not getting seventy-five thousand. So I'm sympathetic to the idea. I mean, I want to make a crusade of it. But you know, if you had the cutoff be somewhere below seventy-five thousand, if you had to be sixty, if you had to be fifty, and again, that's for an individual. So if you're talking about a couple, and let's say the cutoff of fifty thousand, that's a hundred thousand for the couple. So. These aren't low-income people, and again, not to say some of those aren't hurting, but the vast majority, they've kept their jobs. Uh, many of them are working remotely, so they're saving on work-related expenses, and they're, they might have refinanced a mortgage, so they might be saving one percentage point or more on a mortgage. So if you have a 300000 mortgage, you're saving 3000 a year. So I, I would not be bothered if they lowered that cutoff. Again, I know it's been a big topic of debate. I don't know where it will end up. But that's a case where I just don't see the need. What we have, folks, of course, is the early uh, mar- uh, markups, the early plans from the House. And so we're far from getting a finished product. 
if you look at this, the stimulus checks are very, very generous because they give you $1,400 for, for each child, adult dependent. They'll give you $1,400 to help if you're, if you're supporting college students, disabled uh, ability, uh, I mean, disabled adults. And that seems very generous. The, the bill in, expands the child tax credit to $3,000 per child, up to 17 and $3,600 for children under six. That's That seems a generous program that would actually help people. Dean, do you think that that's accurate, or do you think there are flaws in this? Well, again, you can always look at it and do fine-tuning and say this is good, this is bad. But I think on the whole it's a very good program, and I have to say I particularly like the child tax credit. This is fully refundable, so we already had child tax credits, $2,000, but it's not refundable. So... A lot of the people who need it most don't get it. But this would be fully refundable, as you said, 3000 for children under 17, and if they're under 7, it would be 3600 And that will make a big difference for a lot of families, uh, make a big difference in lives of a lot of uh, low-income children. And we know we have a lot of kids that are just growing up in, in poverty, and really you know, the parents are struggling to be able to put food on the table, pay the rent, and this will give them a huge amount more security. And... If we want to talk about that, you've had this argument again, Larry Summers. Uh, I'm sorry to keep taking on Larry Summers, but he's a very prominent economist. Of course, he was saying, "Well, I might be okay with the money, but I want it to be investment." Well, this is investment. So, where you have kids that are growing up either in poverty, the edge of poverty, and now they're going to have uh, their, their their parents will have another three thousand. If you have two kids, six thousand to, and if they're young, maybe seventy two hundred. To, to get the necessities, that makes a difference. We have a lot of research on that. We know that that means that they'll do better in school and likely have better career prospects. So uh, that's a, a very good part of it. Now, now, Biden has proposed it just as a one-year, one-off deal. But my hope, and a lot of people's, I know he's open to this, is that that will be ongoing. And, of course, uh, my Senator Mitt Romney has put his own proposal, similar proposal, some differences, but a similar proposal on the table where it would be an ongoing program. So I think that's a, a potentially, you know, just a huge, huge deal for an awful lot of people that will really, uh, well, one of the estimates was that it would lift half of uh, children out of poverty, half the children currently in poverty out of poverty. I think that sounds great. And there's also money for tribal health programs. So the the tribes near us, it's $6 billion to help tribal health programs. I think pretty much everybody in northern Arizona knows that the tribes have been particularly hard hit by COVID. So that sounds like a really good thing. So when I read it, I see all this good stuff. But I, I also see the controversy about minimum wage, increasing the minimum wage, which is still part of the program. People say it might be taken out. Still part of the program, it would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. What do you think yeah, about it? That that's, has been a real flashpoint. Obviously got a lot of, uh, lot of uh, people concerned, uh, certainly small businesses. One point just to keep in mind, uh, and I realize a lot of people are confused on this, that's not tomorrow. So the $15 I'm forgetting now whether it's 225 or 226, but we're talking five years out, 226, I believe it is. So we're not getting there tomorrow. So it's not as though we're going to tell all these, because, uh, of course, in many states, uh, the minimum wage is still the national uh, federal minimum wage is 725 an hour. So we're not telling businesses, oh, now you're going to have to pay your workers more than twice as much. This is, this is going to be phased in through time. 
And there's a lot of research on this, and I'll have to say, I myself was skeptical of this, but there's, at this point, a lot of research. Um, a number of states and cities have moved either all the way to 15 or very close. So San Francisco and Seattle, two high-wage cities, are already at 15. The state of California is at, I believe, 14 now, and they're supposed to go to 15 next year. And they found very little in terms of disemployment effects. And just to be clear, I'm not saying no one's ever going to lose their job. Small businesses are struggling, and um, anything can put them over. So they get a rent increase that might put them out of business. Uh, they can't pay the electric bill that might put them out of business. So there's going to be some small businesses, no doubt about it. They're going to go, I can't pay my workers that much. I'm out. You know. But the question is, what about for the workforce as a whole? And the evidence is to say from these cases and others that raising the minimum wage to something like 15 an hour in 226 is not going to have any significant disemployment effects. So we aren't going to see large numbers of people go unemployed. And, of course, it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So if, if a worker earning 15 an hour, working a full uh, 50, week a year, 50 weeks a year, 40 hours, that, that's 30000 a year. I'm not going to say that's great, but compare that to getting, say, 20000 a year, which many people do. It makes a huge, huge difference in their life. And one other point of reference, I wrote a short paper on this that uh, people that I think is important and worthwhile. We used to have the minimum wage <coughs> rise in step with productivity growth. So what that meant was as the economy got more productive, as we got richer, in effect, um, workers at the bottom shared in that. And that was, that was the case from 1938 to 1968 for three decades. And needless to say, we had a good economy over that period. Uh, in 68, the unemployment rate was something like 3.5%. So that didn't keep people from being employed. Now, if we had continued to do that, so the minimum wage continued to rise in step with productivity, it would be about $24 an hour today. And if we're looking at 225, it would be about $30 an hour. So we're not, when we talk about $15 an hour, I just say that's a very modest goal. I mean, I understand that's a big increase from where it is today. But that should not be too much to ask. I guess, you know, just as an individual and here in northern Arizona, it, so many people, people are working, Dean, uh, and they're not making a living even though, even though they're working 40 hours a week. They just, they don't, they just don't get enough income. And I know a lot of people double up. They have a partner. They have a wife, husband. Um, and, but still, even with two incomes, I mean, people are really stressed. And it seems like, you know, if, if, say that, if say you had a partner, say you had a wife or husband and they're making 30,000 and you're making 30,000, then you're, you're doing okay. And so, yeah. 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 So, so I mean, the idea here is that if someone's working, putting in a full, you know, full year, not that everyone has to work full year, full time, but, you know, if you're doing that and you have a couple, yeah, you can get by on that. Again, no one, I don't think anyone would say 60000 particularly if you're raising one or two kids. It's certainly not luxurious, but that, that that's doable, at least in most parts of the country. I don't know if I'd want to live in San Francisco on that, but, no. <laughs> but that's, that, that's doable most places. And that's, it's reasonable for us to say that we want someone who's working full, full-time, full year to be able to get by, to be at least somewhat comfortable. I do want to add, folks, that the argument is uh, if you increase minimum wages, the amount of money employers, say a restaurant, has to pay its employees, then the restaurant will, or whatever the business is, because there's like 100,000 different businesses, will lay off people. 
And that's why, that's why there's opposition to the $15 uh, minimum wage. But as, uh, as, as uh, Dean Baker is saying, it's over a fairly long period of time, right? Five years. So yeah. it's not going to be a total shock to, to employers. They have a lot of time to see it coming and prepare for it. That's right. And again, we, we have a lot of experience with raising minimum wages to levels like that. And uh, again, I'm not going to say no one's ever going to have to be laid off for that or business might not go under. But you have plenty of places where you have very strong economies, very strong labor markets, and it hasn't led to job loss. So part of the story, of course, is, and again, it's a good research point to this, that when you raise the wage that uh, workers become more productive. I mean, part of it is employers figure out how to work their, how to restructure their workplace, get more out of their workers. Part of it is, and again, very good research on this, turnover falls, because turnover is a big cost. So if you always have uh, workers leaving after three, four, five months, you have to bring someone else on, even if it's a, we might think of it as a relatively less skilled job, restaurant work. I've done restaurant work. It's, you know, there's skills, but it's not, it's not being a doctor. So, but even even something like restaurant work, it takes time to bring someone on board and show them where everything is, show them how you do things. So, if you have less turnover, it increases productivity. Let me ask you a little broader question, which I I know that you've uh, written and talked about. Where is the economy now? I mean, what is our situation? It's different than anything we've ever experienced before. As far as I know, there's never been a pandemic that has impacted the economy in this way, even going back to the uh, Spanish flu in, in the early teens. So there's been an impact of this. Of, And I think in a way, nobody in the world quite knows how to deal with this. How has it affected our economy? And, and, and what do you see as our way of getting out of the situation that we're in? Yeah, well, it's had a massive impact. Now, we have, uh, of course, we had the unemployment rate back in April, which was around 25%. So we really had a huge, huge whack, and we did bounce back. I mean, I'm not going to say we have a good economy. I mean, you can't be happy about 6.3% unemployment, uh, over 10 million people out of work, and um, it's not, you know, that's not a good story. But we did bounce back a lot of the way, and what we've seen is that you have these sectors with, People are exposed to. People would be exposed to the pandemic. The hotel, rest, hotel restaurants, uh, other personal services, they have taken the bulk of the hit. Um, other sectors of the economy are doing very well. Um, autos, uh, auto sales are up from last year. Um, investment in equipment and software that's up from last year. Um, housing has been going through the roof. People are buying new homes and, uh, of course, building new homes. So, so that's done very well. So it's a mixed story there. Again, I think if we get the pandemic under control and we get this stimulus, and I'm going to say it doesn't have to be exactly this stimulus, but something like that, I think the economy will look pretty good. Now, one aspect that is going to be, I'll just say, difficult to deal with, not impossible, some of the jobs clearly won't come back. So we have somewhere around 25% of the the workforce is now working from home uh, and that's going to partly stay, not completely, but a lot of the people are working from home now. Workplaces have gotten used to that, and in many cases, they, they, they like it. The workers like it. The employers, they're happy. They don't have to rent expensive office space. Um, so, so that's going to, I suspect, be enduring. And what that's going to mean is where you have major cities. Take New York City, where you have all these people coming in to commute every day. Well, there will be a lot fewer people coming in to commute. And 
there's a there's a whole sector of the economy associated with serving the people who come and commute. Of course, the you know if you have cabs, Ubers, whatever it might be, you have uh, restaurants that serve them lunch or dinner afterwards. People go to gyms there. They might go to uh, get a haircut. There's all the there's all these businesses that are associated with serving those commuters. And again, it's not going to go to zero, but let's say the number falls by 25 percent, very plausible number. Well, a lot of those jobs won't come back. Um, similar story, uh, business travel. You're, you're seeing a lot of people that got in the habit that they could do have their meetings over Zoom. Um, that's going to continue. Again, not all of them. Some places, sometimes, you know, people like to travel, so they're going to do it. But it's a safe bet that we're going to see considerably less business travel even after the pandemic's under control than what we had back in 2019. So, again, there, there's a lot of jobs that aren't going to come back that had been serving business travelers. Now, none of that's catastrophic, but the point is that there are people that aren't going to get their jobs back. We're going to have to have an economy that could provide new jobs for them. And we have to be about honest about the projection. I know that people were disappointed at um, uh, Biden's last um, presentation in um, Milwaukee when he said that things really wouldn't be back to normal and people not wearing masks and not social distancing until Christmas of this year. I think people were said, I you know, didn't know it was going to be that long. And, but it well, is. My guess, and I can't, certainly can't speak for, for Biden, but my guess is he's being very careful not to, to create expectations that he can't meet. So you might recall he said that we're going to give 100, uh, 100 million shots in 100 days. We're way ahead of that. We've been giving out about 1.5 million. I think some days we've been as high as 1.6, 1.7. So I think his his practice has been to not overpromise. So uh, again, I'm not claiming to be an expert in epidemiology, but if if we get uh, over 100 million people vaccinated by the spring, which we almost surely will, um, there people are going to be going out without masks and doing things that they used to do. Now, that might not be 100% desirable because we still don't know, for example, whether if you've been vaccinated, whether you might still get a mild case and be able to pass it on. So that's that's a worry. So I don't want to encourage people to do that. But I'm just saying as a practical matter, I know how hard it's been to get people to wear masks when they haven't been vaccinated. I think we'll have a hell of a hard time when, when you have people that have gotten their, their shots and telling them they still have to wear a mask. So I understand uh, Biden trying to be cautious, but I have to say I'm a little more optimistic on that front than you know than than what he said at least. What else would you would you say about the economy? I I when we talked before when we did an interview before you you talked about Zoom replacing business travel and stuff. I mean this is going to have a fairly significant impact if it's if people stick with this uh, working from home. On, on everything associated with, with business, you know, and commerce, uh, including, I mean, it's going to be, I, so the airlines are going to have a hard time, right? This, this thing to remember, folks, is that none of this is simple. And when you change one thing, it shifts things other, other places, right? So when you do Zoom, then you don't go to the office and so forth and so on. And that had an economic impact. Almost all these decisions we make, uh, multiplied by 320 million times, really have an impact on the economy. Um, yeah, yeah. And one of the er- other areas that uh, 
I say this because many of my friends are academics. I, I pretty well, actually, I was teaching at the University of Utah last uh, last spring. Um, that's likely to change. Not to say that we're going to see an end of in-person instruction, but there were already, of course, were online courses predating the pandemic. But now that you've seen widespread experience, that my guess is, you know, almost all anyone who's in college today has had some online courses. I expect we're going to see a lot more of that. So. It's going to be harder for for schools to justify their tuitions. You know, the private schools tuitions of forty, fifty thousand, when people can get online courses at you know a tiny fraction of that price. So there too, I think that's going to be a big change. We'll probably see some of these schools laying off professors, or at least not hiring new ones. And uh, college education, you know, mixed story. I mean, I had. My view: Great college education was in person. What would have been like if it had been on Zoom? Um, hard to say. So that's a mixed story. But whether we like it or not, I think that's going to be an enduring change. I think it's interesting. Oh, all right, let me ask this: Other things that you see impacting the economy because people are focused on, you know, the stimulus and that. Will it get us out of this? Will it help us get out of this? But there are behind all that. There are changes that the that the virus has made in the, in the way we do things in the country. What what else would be impact? I hadn't thought of the colleges, for example. Well, I think there it is going to be very wide open. I mean, one of the issues uh, again, a sector that's been very hard hit, uh, live entertainment, arts. Um, so, what will that look like? So, you know, play playhouses have basically been shut down. Live concerts. Um, will those come back? Uh, my my expectation is they mostly will, but. Again, if people haven't been in the habit of going to concerts for a year, um, will we see it come back to where it was? Um, perhaps not, um, but that's that, that's something that's up in the air. One of the areas that I've done some work in, I'd love to see, yeah, well, there's been more discussion on this, I'll just say, and we'd love to see some policy changes. In terms of uh, the, the healthcare sector itself, or I should say uh, vaccines, drugs, there's been considerable push around having more open research. So one of the issues that comes up with the pandemic is that, of course, we have a shortage of vaccines. We're getting them out in the U.S., and you know, the Biden administration has made a big point of securing more vaccines uh, so that the population can be vaccinated relatively quickly. But in the developing world, um, they're way behind. Um, they're not. They don't have the money to get the vaccines, and in, in a context where they're in short supply, um, that could mean that the virus persists for years in, say, sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, other parts of the developing world. Now, what I and some others have argued is that if we had done this open source, and we could still go this route, but we had basically paid for the research up front, as we did with Moderna. And then we said, okay, anyone who wants to can manufacture it. Now, people pointed out correctly that the manufacturing processes are complex, particularly with the, R the mRNA vaccines like Moderna. But that technology can be shared. And to my view, it would be a great thing for the U.S. and for the world if we had more open source research. Um, I'm talking about the vaccines, but prescription drugs, numbers, certainly with climate technologies, so that you could share this, share the developments internationally. Obviously, require some international cooperative agreements, and these would be cheap. So it's very rare, for example, with a drug that it's actually expensive to manufacture the drug. So when we have drugs that are selling for thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars per prescription, it's not because it's expensive to produce. It's because 
drug company has a patent monopoly on it, and it's a drug people need for their health or even their life, if they could pay it, they'll pay it. But if you had all this be open source so that anyone could manufacture it, drugs would be cheap, and it wouldn't be this big issue. Are we going to pay for these expensive drugs? Because they wouldn't be expensive. Wouldn't the argument against that be that the drug companies, I don't know now, but back a while back, they were the most profitable sector of the economy or close to it. And if they weren't able to make their profit, I think the argument you'd hear from conservatives, if they're not able to make really big profits, then they can't afford the kind of research that they need to do to come up with new drugs. Well, the point would be that you would be paying for them the research directly. And that's exactly what we did with Moderna. We paid Moderna a bit less than a billion dollars for its research and then the clinical testing of its vaccine. So they, they didn't take any risk. They didn't have to put up capital and they didn't take, a, you know, if it turned out that they went through the clinical test and what do you know, it didn't turn out to be effective. They weren't out anything. They got paid. The taxpayers that were out the money. So what, what I'm saying here is that we would we would pay for research more generally. So we pay for cancer research, pay pay for research into heart disease, uh, other diabetes. So the government would be paying for the for the research up front. So companies would be compensated and make a profit. I mean, the model I sometimes point to is uh, military contracting. Uh, you have contractors like Lockheed, Boeing. They make a lot of money on military contracts. They might also get patents, but they're mostly they're getting the money on, on the contract. So the government's contracting with Lockheed to develop a new fighter bomber or Boeing to satellite system, whatever it might be. And they, they make plenty of money, but they do it through a different mechanism. And you could do that with prescription drugs where we'd sign contracts with the company saying, okay, we're going to give you X billion to research cancer drugs over the next decade. And, you know, you're audited periodically to make sure you didn't go off to Mexico with it or whatever. But, you know, you're, you're evaluated on it. And then at the end of the period, you know, presumably you want your contract renewed and go, here are our successes. Here's why we should get the contract renewed or get more money or expand into different areas. If you don't have much to show, well, presumably you wouldn't get renewed. But that, I think, is a much, much better route. And, again, we sort of did that with Operation Warp Speed, except we, we both paid for the research up front, and we gave them patent monopolies, which, to my view, makes zero sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, all right. What's the argument against this? Because it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Let's just have the government pay for the research, set it up like like the military does with these huge, huge, huge contracts. Um Companies then wouldn't have any risk. The, their investors wouldn't have any risk or not much risk. What's the opposition to that? I would think they just wouldn't want to do it because they think they could make more money with patents. Yeah, I, I think it's it's basically they well two things. One, they could probably make more money. I can't guarantee it, but they probably make more money under the current system. But the other, and this is something I've discovered working on policy issues for more than a quarter century, um, inertia is an incredibly powerful force. So if you go to a drug company, even if I could sit down you know, with someone from Pfizer or Merck and go through this and go through all the arguments and go, oh, yeah, that's right, we could still make money. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. They're going to go, but we like what we're doing now. So it's like, why on earth? Here you have a very successful model. When I'm saying successful, I mean they're profitable. Um, they might not be successful for the rest of us, but they're, they're very profitable. So why on earth would they want to shift to something else when they've been making so much money under the current system? So I think that's kind of the bottom line. 
So, I mean, there are issues. I'm not going to say there are no issues. We just put this over. Everything will work perfectly. The world's not like that. But I think the, the main obstacle is just they like the current system. They make a lot of money with it. They don't want to change. Yeah, I uh, was participating in doing audiovisual shows for the major um, drug companies. And they're very tough. I mean, these guys are organized almost like a military group. You know, it's the hierarchical. It's, uh, it's, uh, profit oriented. The salesmen are basically tortured into selling as much of their drugs as possible. I mean, we always blame them for, for over exaggerating or not being quite clear about the downside of a drug. But, um, these companies, in my experience in watching them work, straight up are are pretty ferocious i mean they they're not fooling around you know yeah yeah no they're a very powerful lobby and you know that point you made a moment ago it's a very very important point that they, they market their drugs because we give them that incentive and one of the issues uh, i haven't seen this brought up really i mean i've raised it but uh, i haven't seen other people really make a point of talking about it. part of the story of the opioid crisis was that you had purdue pharma johnson johnson the other big manufacturers they were they were pushing their drugs. They were telling doctors that you don't have to worry about them being addictive, even when they had evidence they were addictive. They're saying we have these new generation of opioids; they're not addictive like the previous ones, and they knew that not to be true. And they had been sent to do that because they had a patent monopoly. If they were selling them as cheap generics, not to say you know generic companies make money too, but you, you have much less incentive to go out and lie about your 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 drugs. In, in order to push them, you know, when you're just selling them for, I don't know, 10 or $15 a prescription, it just wouldn't make a lot of sense. They wouldn't do it. Well, I really want to thank you with, for being with us. Uh, we're kind of running out of time. I don't know if I have – I'm seeing three minutes waved at me. And so um, I'm not going to ask you to take up another topic or stuff in three minutes, but I will say that I very much appreciate you being on the show. like to have you on again. Uh, folks, every, we check in regularly with Dean Baker to see his, his take on the economy. And I think he's been, he's been very good and very accurate in my experience over the years. So I want to thank you for being with us. And, uh, um, that's my main point. We want to thank our, some of our sponsors or supporters. Um, El Portal, the world's most incredibly dog friendly, uh, luxury hotel, El Portal in Sedona, and Democrats of the Red Rocks who've been supportive uh, for us for years. They have a really good program. I suggest folks go on their website now and and see what's on there, and, and because they have so many activities that it kind of uh, hard to sometimes keep completely up with it. Um, that's that's it. We want to shout out to. Uh, to uh, Klaus von, von Studerheim, uh, we, uh, Klaus is, is we hear he's he's at home, uh, he's comfortable. Klaus was an incredible part of a democratic perspective. He came out of nowhere seemingly and uh, became a big part of our program, designing uh, our advertising and so forth and so on. So a shout out to Klaus. Um, the other thing is we'll be on uh, again next week and. Um, Let's see if I can, my memory can tell me what we're going to be doing. We're going to be having a show with the sheriff of Yavapai County and the prosecutor, Mick Jordal, on the county's program to take the mentally ill and get them out of the justice system. 
I think this is a, that'll be an important show, folks, because, you know, if you look at the little blotters in the newspaper and stuff, you see so many of the problems are actually uh, mentally ill transit, uh, transient figures. Um, yeah, I wonder, we're wondering if a more social work process and approach to these people won't sort of enrage them. Uh, when we go, when police go and they try to command uh, control on people who are mentally ill, it, it, it often ends in, a, in a, a useless confrontation with both policemen and with everybody else nearby. So that's the program next week. I hope you'll turn in. And uh, again, thank you, Dean Baker, for being with us. I appreciate it. I think we've just about run out of time. BDID.org is the website. All our podcasts are on there for the last nine years. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.